0: Section 14 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1 The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 4 Italy and Her Invaders by Stanley Leaths. Part 3 With the completed conquest of Milan, French predominance in the peninsula was established. Venice was content to accept the situation for the present and to make use of her powerful friend, who sent ships to cooperate in her war with the Turks during the years 1499 to 1501. The Pope was fain to lean on France. French troops assisted Cesare in the conquest of Imola and Forli, and afterwards served him against Rimini, Pesaro, and Faenza. His further conquests were limited by French sufferance. When he threatened Bologna or Florence, he was warned off by their august protector. In the enterprise of Naples, Cesare followed the French banner as a willing ally almost as a subject. During the time of Ludovico's success, several of the Italian states had given him help or shown him goodwill. After his fall, the Duke of Ferrara, the Marquis of Mantua, Bentivoglio of Bologna, and others were forced to pay compensation to France for their incautious actions. Florence reaped the reward of her more correct behavior when the king sent Beaumont with French troops to assist the Florentines against Pisa. The failure of the expedition brought Florence into temporary disgrace, but later she was allowed to buy her pardon. Thus, in Lombardy, in Tuscany, in the Papal States, there was no power that did not accept as a fact the predominance of France. It may be doubted whether Louis aimed at converting predominance into sovereignty, but he was determined to conquer Naples, and he hoped that an occasion would offer to establish the Cardinal of Rouen as Pope. These ends achieved, he might be content with the substance, while the emperor still enjoyed the shadow. Meanwhile, no great effort would be required to keep Maximilian in check. But with regard to Naples, Louis had in Aragon a more dangerous rival. Naples had been a part of the kingdom of Sicily, and Sicily was owned by Aragon. Moreover, Alfonso of Aragon had been de facto king of Naples, and had established there the ruling race of kings. These claims were not convincing, but neither were Louis' claims beyond possibility of question nor could the king of sicily remain a tranquil spectator while his neighbour and relative was displaced by a new and aggressive power louis determined to compromise and november fifteen hundred concluded at granada a secret treaty with aragon for a joint conquest of naples conceding to ferdinand a fair half of the kingdom and provisionally the provinces of apulia and calabria Strengthened by this compact, Louis was free to move. In May 1501, his army was ready in Lombardy. With the certainty of Spanish aid, 1,000 lances, 4,000 Swiss, and 6,000 French infantry were held sufficient. The command was divided between Aubigny, the Count of Cayazzo, Francesco di San Severino, and the Duke of Valentinois, A fleet under Ravenstein was operating on the coast from the convenient base of Genoa. Federigo relied on help from Sicily. Where was the great Gonzalo, who had recently returned from a successful expedition against the Turks, and who, acting under orders, was careful not to undeceive him? The first news of the coalition came to Naples from Rome, where, in June... Alexander issued a bull, depriving Federigo of his throne and confirming the partition already arranged between the kings of France and Aragon. In July, the French army reached Capua, which was held by Fabrizio Colonna with a sufficient force. But the French artillery soon made a practicable breach, and while terms of surrender were being discussed, the French were admitted into the town which they sacked with every circumstance of cruelty and outrage. There was no further resistance. On August 2, Federigo retired to Ischia and, after a time, decided to accept the asylum offered to him by Louis, who provided him with a rich endowment and an honorable position in France. On August 4, French garrisons occupied the castles of Naples, and La Palice was sent to hold the Abruzzi. Louis d'Armagnac, Duke of Nemours, was appointed viceroy of the newly acquired kingdom. Meanwhile, Gonzalo, without difficulty, occupied his master's share of the kingdom of Naples, and was joined by Prospero and Fabrizio Colonna, whose family was, about this time, expelled from their possessions in papal territory while Cesare, their bitterest enemy, was leagued with the French. Only at Taranto was there considerable resistance. Here lay Federigo's son Ferrante. The town was strong, but a siege by sea and land compelled it, after a stout resistance, to come to terms. March 1502. Gonzalo promised his liberty to Ferrante but the Spanish king disregarded the promise and caused the young prince to be sent in custody to Spain. The Treaty of Granada had not been so carefully drawn as to exclude all possibility of doubt. France was to have the Abruzzi, the Terra di Lavoro, Naples, and Gaeta, while Spain received Apulia and Calabria. But nothing was said about the province of the Capitanata lying between Apulia and the Abruzzi, about the Basilicata, lying between Calabria and Apulia, or about the two Principati, lying between the Basilicata and the Terra di Lavoro. Yet the clause stipulating that the incomes of the two shares should be approximately equal might, with a little goodwill, have pointed the way to an equitable settlement. The main difficulty turned on the question of the Capitanata. The inhabitants of the barren Abruzzi depended on the corn lands of the Capitanata for their food supplies. The flocks that wintered in the plains were driven in summer to the mountain pastures, from Apulia proper into the southern Apennines, and from the Capitanata into the Abruzzi. Toll Dogana being taken from them on the way for the king of Sicily. The treaty settled that, quote, the Dogana of Apulia, end quote, should be collected by the commissaries of Spain and equally divided between the kings. The French, supported by recent administrative usage, denied that the Capitanata was part of Apulia and claimed it as a necessary complement of their own share. No satisfactory agreement was reached on these dangerous points, although the question was referred to the kings for decision. At Troia, in the Capitanata, at Tripalda, in the Principato Ultra, collisions took place. Finally, in July, open war broke out. Louis, about the same time, visited the Milanese and apparently purchased the neutrality or support of Cesare by giving him a free hand in the Romagna and even against Bologna. Reinforcements were sent to the French, and the Spaniards were driven from Cerignola and then from Canosa, August 1502. Gonzalo was obliged to concentrate at Barletta on the northerly coast of Apulia, holding also Taranto. The indecision of the French leaders saved the great captain. While they were occupying unimportant places in Apulia and Calabria and watching Gonzalo at Barletta, the time for a crushing blow went by. The Venetians sent provisions, if not money, to Barletta. Reinforcements were sent into Calabria from Sicily. In March 1503, a fresh army reached Reggio from Spain. In April 3,000 Lanznecht were sent by Maximilian from Trieste to Balletta. Gonzalo had already shown that he was to be feared when he fell upon La Palice Truvo, defeated and captured him. On hearing that Aubigny had been routed at Seminara in Calabria, he was able to take a vigorous offensive. He left Barletta with the chief part of his troops and seized Cerignola. The French generals decided to strike a despairing blow. They attacked Gonzalo's army in a fortified position at Cerignola and were completely defeated, Nemours being killed. The news determined Allegre to evacuate Naples, except the castles, and to retire to Gaeta. On the 16th of May, Gonzalo entered the capital. Prospero Colonna was sent to subdue the Abruzzi, while the great engineer, Pedro Navarra, employed the newest resources of military art against the castles of Naples. In a short time, they were made untenable. At Gaeta, however, the French, strengthened by reinforcements from Genoa, repulsed the conquerors, while Louis d'Ar still held Venosa with a remnant of the army defeated at Cerignola. At the very crisis of the war, Louis had been entangled in a futile negotiation. Since the end of 1500, Philip, Archduke of Austria, had been busying himself with the double object of securing his dominions in the Netherlands against France and of obtaining for his infant son the duke of Luxembourg, afterwards Charles V, additions by marriage to those vast possessions to which he was already heir-presumptive. The outcome of these efforts was a contract of betrothal at Lyon, August 1501, between Charles and Claude, the daughter of Louis XII, a provisional treaty at Trent between Maximilian and Louis, october 1501 agreeing to this marriage and stipulating the investiture of Milan for Louis an interpretation of the same arranged between Philip and Louis in December of the same year at Blois but never accepted by Maximilian and finally a treaty concluded by Philip with Louis at Lyon April 5 1503 in the name of Ferdinand and Isabella by which the whole of the kingdom of Naples was to be given to the infant pair. This last treaty was never ratified by Ferdinand and Isabella, who asserted that Philip had exceeded his powers, and Gonzalo paid no heed to it. But Louis showed less prudence. Relying on the treaty, he deferred in the critical month of April the dispatch of a body of troops which he had ready in Genoa. It is true that the threatening movements of the Swiss, to whom Louis was obliged at this moment to cede Bellinzona, gave an additional reason for delaying what had been already too long delayed. The disasters and humiliation of the year called for a great effort. The French raised three armies, one of which was directed on the Spanish frontier of Navarre, and another against roussillon while the third was intended for the recovery of Naples. The Italian expedition was entrusted to Tremouille. The northern powers of Italy remained, to all appearance, faithful. Ferrara, Mantua, Bologna, Florence furnished contingents. In August, the French were beginning to move. The Pope and Cesare vacillated long between the parties, but... At the crisis, they were both stricken down by illness, and on the 18th of August, the Pope expired. The ambassadors and the cardinals succeeded in freeing the town from the armed men of rival factions, Orsini, Colonna, Cesare, but Gonzalo was at Castiglione, and the French advanced guard at Nepi, so that the election took place, as it were, under the shadow of war. It wisely ended by giving the prize to neither of the foreign nations. The new pope, Pius III, Francesco Piccolomini, treated Cesare with indulgence and left him in a position to bargain with both Spain and France. However, his final adhesion to the latter power proved to be of little value, while both Orsini and Colonna were thereby driven into the arms of Spain. The French advance was delayed by the illness of La Tremouille, whose place was ultimately taken by the Marquis of Mantua. Finally, they moved forward by the Latin Way, which was blocked by Gonzalo, holding San Germano, Aquino, and Roccasecca. Joined by Allegre from Gaeta, they attacked Roccasecca, but were beaten off and obliged to retire to Ceprano. October 1503. They then determined to move southwards along the right bank of the Garigliano, hoping to be able to advance by the Appian Way. On the Garigliano, the two armies confronted each other for weeks. The French, vexed in the marshy land by rainy, wintry weather, deprived of supplies and of pay by the dishonesty of commissariat officers, were in bad case, but hardly in worse than their opponents. Having bridged but failed to cross the river, the French drew back a little, scattering themselves over a somewhat wide area for better provisioning. Discipline was bad, and the Marquis of Mantua, insulted by his troops, withdrew from the command. At length, in the last days of December, the vigilance of the enemy being relaxed, Gonzalo crossed the Garigliano higher up and fell upon the French, disunited and unprepared. A complete rout followed. The artillery was hurriedly embarked on boats and sent round by sea. The men fled in disorder for Gaeta, pursued to the gates of the town by the victorious Spaniards and Italians. During several days afterwards, Parties of fugitives were straggling into Rome, half-naked and half-starved. Some of the boats were swamped, and in one of them perished Piero de' Medici. The French captains in Gaeta soon surrendered. Nor could Louis d'Ar in Apulia keep up the hopeless struggle. Such was the end of French lordship in Naples, where Gonzalo now held unquestioned sway dispensing the royal bounty as if it was his own, and encouraging his soldiers to live at the expense of the inhabitants. The fortune of war had decided against Louis. He was fain to heal his wounded pride by new treaties of marriage, which recognized his rights and promised to enrich his offspring at the expense of France. By the Treaty of Blois with Maximilian, September 1504, claude already heiress of brittany was to receive milan with genoa and asti the duchy of burgundy with macon and auxerre and the county of blois as a dowry on her marriage with charles in return the king of the romans conferred upon louis the investiture of milan for a cash consideration a separate and secret treaty stipulated a joint attack on venice An arrangement made at Hagenau, April 1505, between the same and Archduke Philip, contemplated the addition of Naples to this ample endowment. But in October of this year, at Blois, Louis preferred to give the kingdom of Naples as a dowry to his relative, Germain of Foix, on her marriage with Ferdinand of Aragon and Ferdinand so far recognized the rights of Louis that he promised a compensation of one million ducats and, in default of heirs of the marriage, the reversion of the kingdom to the most Christian king. It was settled that an amnesty should be granted to the barons who had supported the angevin cause and that restitution of property should be made as far as possible. As a sign of restored amity, An interview took place at Savona, under circumstances of unusual trustfulness, between the sovereigns, June 1507. Gonzalo, who on this occasion received extraordinary marks of confidence and admiration from both the kings, enjoyed his last and most memorable moments of good fortune. His master, who suspected his ambition and disapproved of his methods of administration, enticed him by the promise of still higher honors to return with him to Spain. There he found himself deluded and disappointed. The wealth which he had accumulated in his master's service he was allowed to enjoy, but his days of public activity were over. The arrangements mentioned above did not affect the actual position of Italian affairs. Indeed, All dispositions depending on the marriage of Claude and Charles were rendered void by the decision of Louis in 1506 to bestow his daughter's hand on the heir presumptive of France, Francis of Angoulême. The years following the disastrous wars of Naples were years of uneasy watchfulness, of bewildering arrangements and rearrangements of unstable leagues and combinations, of mendacious protestations of friendship and treacherous provocations addressed to jealousy and greed. The inheritance of the Duke of Valentinois was gathered in by his enemies Orsini, Colonna, Venice, and Giuliano della Rovere, who, as Julius II, succeeded the short-lived Piccolomini. Cesare himself, a prisoner in Spain, added another to the list of those whose trust in Ferdinand proved their ruin. The war of Florence with Pisa continued, but barely interested anyone besides the belligerents. Gradually, from an old man's passion, as from live fire hidden under blackened embers, infectious energy spread through Italy and through Europe. Cesare Borgia's conquests and fall had brought almost all of the Romagna and the March of Ancona under the direct control of the Holy See. The ambition of Julius would be satisfied with nothing less than the whole of what had ever been claimed by the successors of Peter. Venice first earned his hatred by refusing to give up Faenza and Rimini, which she had occupied, after the death of Alexander. The secret treaty of Brois gave Julius hopes of a speedy revenge. But that treaty remained without effect, and Julius had to wait, exercising a violent self-restraint and evincing qualities not natural in him of patience, reticence, and duplicity. Practicing simony and extortion on the grand scale he slowly replenished the papal treasury which had been plundered by cesare borgia on alexander's death then 1506 reckoning that swift and sudden action might reach its effect before either venice or france decided to offer opposition he struck a rapid blow at two usurpers of saint peter's rights at perugia giampaolo baglioni made complete submission Against Bologna, the French themselves sent troops to aid the Pope, unwilling, when they saw he was in earnest, to risk the loss of his friendship. Giovanni Bentivoglio and his sons, hopeless of successful resistance, took to flight. The Pope set up his own government in the town. While still at Bologna, Julius heard unwelcome news. In Genoa... French rule had not led to peace. Genoa had always been noted for the violence of its civic feuds, which had largely contributed to its defeat in the commercial race with Venice. These disputes had, in the past, centered about the two great plebeian families of Adorno and Campo Fregoso. The quarrel, which now arose, was a quarrel of class against class, The nobles had been perhaps unduly encouraged by their aristocratic French rulers. At any rate, it seems clear that they were guilty, on more than one occasion, of arrogant and injurious conduct towards the common people, many of whom were in their own esteem, as in their wealth, equal to the nobles. In June and July 1506, matters came to a head. An attack was made on the nobles, especially on the powerful family of Fiesco. Neither Ravenstein, the governor, nor his deputy, Roquebertin Bertan, showed much zeal or capacity in dealing with the trouble. Matters were allowed to go from bad to worse. At first, the common people were content with the concession of two-thirds of the public offices instead of the half-share hitherto allowed to them. Then the artisans, as opposed to the rich plebeian merchants and bankers, more and more got the upper hand. Tribunes of the people were appointed, and finally an artisan, a dyer, Paolo Danovi, was elected to be doge. Meanwhile the cities on the seacoast were taken by force from their noble governors, and in November siege was laid to Monaco, which was held by the noble Grimaldi. Five months the siege lasted, while in Genoa, the French garrison was obliged first to vacate the palace and retire to the castle, and finally carried on an active war of bombardment against the town. Monaco held out with conspicuous bravery against great odds until relieved in March by Ève d'Alegre. Julius was disturbed in the enjoyment of his victorious sojourn at Bologna by the news that the French king was coming in person with a large army to punish his rebellious city. Himself a native of Savona and a favorer of the popular party in Genoa, the Pope, while opposed to the coercion of Genoa, feared also ulterior designs of the French king. The ambition of the Cardinal of Rouen was well known, and it could only be satisfied at the expense of the existing pontiff. In alarm, Julius withdrew to Rome, where he followed events in the north with anxiety. The king, with nearly 10,000 Swiss, and an army apparently disproportionate to his task, was at Asti on April 16, 1507. His troops at once moved on Genoa by Butzala. The command of the army was in the hands of Charles d'Ambois. On the 25th of April, he began the attack, ordering the capture of a bastion planted on the highest point of the hills surrounding Genoa and commanding the whole position. The access was very difficult, and the Swiss disliked the task However, they were shamed into doing their duty by a troop of dismounted men-at-arms who advanced to the assault. When the place at length was reached, the Genoese took to flight without further resistance, but many of the assailants were wounded on the way. After some scattered fighting, that night the army held the heights overlooking Genoa. The next day envoys were sent to treat but while terms were being discussed, warlike views prevailed within the town, and the whole force of Genoa came out to fight. They were enticed to attack the well-ordered mass of the French infantry and driven back in panic to their walls. The next day, the citizens accepted the king's terms of unconditional surrender. On the 28th, he rode into the town with drawn sword Cancelled the city's privileges, imposed on them a fine of 300,000 ducats, ordered a new castle to be built, and pay for a garrison of 2,000 foot to be henceforth provided. While imposing on Genoa his will, he was careful to preserve it from plunder or outrage. Paolo da Novi fled, but was shortly afterwards captured and put to death. The fears that had disturbed Julius when he heard of the powerful expedition against Genoa proved vain. Nothing was attempted, if anything had been imagined, against the Holy Father. But the interview at Savona, June 1507, which followed shortly, was calculated to cause him not less serious alarm. Ferdinand had sought, but had not received, the investiture of Naples, and had shown his resentment by avoiding an interview at Ostia which the Pope had wished. We do not know what the kings may have discussed at Savona. The secrecy observed at the time still baffles the curiosity of investigators. There was grave matter for deliberation. Maximilian, the inveterate enemy of Louis, and the rival of Ferdinand for the Regency of Castile, was making serious preparations for a descent into Italy with the ostensible purpose of obtaining the imperial crown and the probable intention of driving the French from Milan. Common measures may have been considered against this common foe. Joint action against Julius may also have been proposed, but the document from Simancas, published by Mould, seems to prove that the kings finally decided to attempt a league in which Julius and Maximilian should be included as friends. The careful exclusion of all other powers from the projected league seems to indicate an intended victim, to whose sacrificial feast all four could be invited, with the prospect, if not the certainty, of a favorable reply. The oath of Louis at Savona foreshadows the League of Cambrai Venice is not mentioned, but no other solution satisfies the conditions of the enigma. Venice had indeed run up a long account with the powers of Italy and Europe. Since 1495, she had held Brindisi, Otranto, and other ports of Apulia, and thus mutilated Ferdinand's new acquisition. By treaty with France, and by older conquest, she held the eastern portion of the Duchy of Milan. Against Julius, she held Rimini and Faenza, as well as her earlier possession, Ravenna. There had also been acrimonious discussion about the right of collation to Venetian prelacies, such as Vicenza and Cremona. Maximilian's imperial rights were ignored in Padua and Verona, his hereditary rights in Friuli. She had recently refused to Maximilian free passage with his army through her territory for his coronation at Rome. She had declined to renew her league with France, declaring the old league sufficient. The day of reckoning was at hand. If such a league as that of Cambrai, was projected at Savona. Maximilian's unconcerted action assisted the plan. Enraged at the repeated refusals of Venice to grant him a free passage, he attacked the Republic in February 1508. The fortunes of war were against him. The French stood by their ally. Pitigliano held his own in the Veronese, while Alviano in the East took Gors and Trieste in the hereditary lands of the enemy and threatened a further advance. The, quote, elected Roman emperor, as he now called himself, was fain in June to conclude for three years a humiliating truce by which Venice retained her conquests. In this truce the king of France was himself included, and he wished the Duke of Gelders, his own ally, and Maximilian's obdurate enemy to be also comprised. But Venice, with unusual imprudence, allowed the wishes of her reputed friend to remain unsatisfied. This inconsiderate conduct was an excuse, if not the reason, for the decided adhesion of France to the enemies of the Republic. We catch glimpses during the eighteen months that followed the meeting of Savona of the negotiations which led Maximilian to forget all the painful associations of slight or wrong connected with Milan, Burgundy, Gelders, and Brittany. His new rancor against Venice, the unsuccessful progress of the war in Gelders, the influence of his daughter Margaret, anxious to protect her nephew's dominions in the Netherlands, which were now entrusted to her charge, the secret and cautious instigations of the Pope all urged him towards the League at length concluded at Cambrai in December 1508 by Margaret and the Cardinal of Rouen. After a temporary settlement of the affairs of Gelders, a League was there secretly compacted, purporting to include not only France and the Empire, but also the Pope and Aragon. The cardinal undertook to answer for the pope. No one spoke for the king of Aragon, but it is probable that a secret understanding already existed. Each power was, by the united action of the League, to recover the places held against it by Venice. Thus, Spain would recover Monopoli, Trani, Brindisi, Otranto. The pope, Ravenna, Rimini, Faenza, and smaller places in the neighborhood, a list which might be afterwards extended. Maximilian, Verona, Padua, Vicenza, Treviso, Friuli, and generally all places held or usurped by Venice from Austria or the Empire. While France was to receive Brescia, Bergamo, Crema, besides Cremona and the d'Adda ceded to Venice as her share of the spoils of Ludovico il Moro. The Italian powers were to open the war by the 1st of April, 1509, and Maximilian promised to join them within the space of 40 days. The investiture of Milan was to be renewed to Louis for the sum of a hundred thousand crowns, still due under the earlier bargain. England and Hungary were to be invited to join the unwieldy coalition, and each contracting power was given four months for naming its allies. Venice had long been aware that such a conspiracy would correspond to the Pope's inmost and deepest wishes, and that similar plans had frequently been discussed between France and Maximilian. She may, notwithstanding, have relied on the jealousies and hatreds of the powers for keeping them apart. Something of the truth, however, reached her soon after the meeting of Cambrai. Early news of a more precise order came to her from the great Gonzalo, who offered his services to the Signoria. The results would have been interesting had this remarkable offer been accepted, While negotiations were carried on in the vain hope of detaching the Pope from the alliance, all preparations were hurried forward for resistance. France declared war on the 7th of April. On the 27th, the Pope proclaimed his ban. The Venetians had more than 30,000 men on foot, Italian men-at-arms, picked infantry from Apulia and Romagna, with the excellent levies from the Val di Lamone under Dionigi Dinaldi, stradiots from Illyria and the Moria, sagdars from Crete and a considerable force of native militia. Of the Allies, the French were first in the field, opposed on the Adda by the Venetians under Pitigliano and Alviano. The impetuous character of the latter was ill-yoked, with the Fabian strategy of his colleague, and the policy of the Signoria was a compromise between the two. Alviano proposed to cross the Adda and take the offensive. This plan having been set aside, Pitigliano determined to recover Treviglio, which had given itself to the French. The place was captured and burned, but, owing to the delay thus caused, the Venetians were not ready to prevent the French from crossing the Adda at Cassano. The Venetian orders were to run no unnecessary risk. Thus, the French were allowed to capture Rivolta undisturbed. But when, May 14, Louis began to move southwards towards Pandino and threatened to cut off Venetian communications with Crema and Cremona, the Venetians hurried to anticipate him the light horse were sent on to occupy Pandino and Palazzo, and the main force followed along the higher ground, while the French moved by the lower road parallel to the Ada. Between Agnadello and Pandino, the French found an opportunity to attack the Venetian columns on the march. By this time, the Venetian army was spread over some four miles of ground, the artillery was not at hand, and Alviano, who was not present when the fight began, was only able to bring into action a small portion of the heavy-armed horse and a part of the infantry. It is not certain whether he could have refused battle. It is certain that he did not expect it. Nor is it clear whether the French movement on Pandino was a feint or whether their attack was an afterthought when the movement on Pandino had failed. It is certain that the French were able to throw the whole weight of their force on a part of the Venetian army. Aided, however, by the higher ground and the vineyards which clothed the slope, the Venetians held their own for a while and even gained some advantage. But when the main battle of the French came up, while Alviano received no further support, the day was lost. The losses fell chiefly on the levies raised by conscription from the Venetian peasantry, who did well. Alviano's own band of infantry from Bresighella was almost annihilated. He was himself captured, fighting desperately. Pitigliano, with the main body of men at arms, was able to retreat in good order. But a great part of the army was broken and fled. Thirty-six pieces of ordnance Were left behind and fell into the hands of the enemy. Vitigliano at Brescia endeavoured to collect and reorganise the remnant of his army, but the demoralisation was great, and the troops refused to remain with the colours, deserting in numbers as soon as they received their pay. End of section 14. Recording by Linda Johnson.